SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 13 with guest Bill Graziano. Our guest today is Bill Graziano, is a partner with Clear Data Consulting, Inc., and a Microsoft SQL Server MVP. He also runs SQLTeam.com, one of the largest SQL Server-related websites. Bill spends his day helping clients better use SQL Server. He's involved in the application development process, in performance tuning and database administration. Published numerous articles on SQLTeam.com and is a regular speaker at SQL Server user groups. Bill's a spotlight speaker at Parcel and currently sits on the passport of directors. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. It's great to be doing this. <laughs> That's great. So I, uh, I must admit, I, where I tend to come across, Bill, for the, the listeners, is at uh, various past conferences uh, around the world. And uh, so you've been traveling fairly extensively with those? I have. I just, uh, I, I know I saw you in Barcelona last month. Yes. And we had our most recent conference there, which was a great success. It was a great conference. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to sit in your session, though. Ah, that's life. <laughs> yeah, there are a few few guys uh, from the uh, from the organisers there. Actually, I noticed uh, Paul Nelson was there. He he, uh, he was one of the ones in the room, so it was good. So. Yeah, we typically have uh, board of directors meetings at each conference. So yeah. So all the board of directors were running around there, but it was a. Uh, it was uh, it was a great co- uh, conference. We have the one in Seattle coming up uh, in November, mm. and uh, everybody listening to this until April twenty eighth, two thousand six. The call for speakers is open, so if you'd like to speak, now is a great time to submit an abstract. You can go to sequelpass.org and submit that. And there's my pass plug that I wanted to get in. Ah, that's very good. Yes, indeed. Uh, encourage people to do that. In in fact, the uh, the one in the U.S. last year, the uh, the one we had in Dallas, it was a, a really enjoyable conference as well. I must admit, the uh, I, I think it was uh, especially good. I, I recall that one, just given the fact that we also had the SQL MVP summit at the same time. So there, there was just an, an amazing group of people there for the week. So yeah, that did. That was that was really neat. Uh, we should we should also have a great one in Seattle. Or I would I would hope we'd get uh, over two thousand people at this conference. Yeah, so it should be our largest yet. Uh, we should get a lot of the uh, Microsoft developer team there because we're in Seattle. Yes, and really good show. So, listen, Bill. So, what I might do as a start is is get you to uh, just tell us how how you came to be involved with SQL Server in the first place. All right. Well, this is actually kind of a two part question, and I actually started years and years ago. I worked for a big consulting firm. It used to be called Anderson Consulting, now called Accenture. I started ah, yes. doing. DBA work on Sybase way back when. And so I was a Sybase DBA for probably uh, about a year and uh, then moved on and did an awful lot of project management, went to work for a little startup company. And, you know, seven or eight years after I'd been a Sybase DBA, I left that company, started out on my own and was trying to find some skill that I could, uh, that I could easily market and uh, found a client that I knew and started doing some work for them and just kept doing more and more SQL server stuff. And it was, you know, again, it was all the Sybase stuff rehashed at that point. Yeah. And, you know, that was, what's that been now? Seven or eight, almost seven years I've been on my own now hmm. uh, doing you know, probably 80 to 90% SQL server work. What, what do you find uh, produces most of your work? Uh, most of or what, what I area do is, of SQL server? Yeah. Uh, most of the, in terms of the type of work that I do, there's an awful lot of performance tuning. Uh, I mm-hmm. spend a lot of time going in and you know, finding a problem, the server's not responding, and trying to identify what's causing that. Uh, I also spend an awful lot of time working with uh, development teams and uh, 
you know, how do we better use SQL Server? How do we better structure our application? How do we design it up front so it'll perform well? Yeah, I must admit, most of the most of the SQL consulting work I do at the moment, the uh, uh, somebody asked me the other day, what sort of things do do we spend most of the time? At? And I must admit, most of the time uh, we're walking in the door and somebody's saying this just doesn't run quickly or you know this there we have a performance problem or we have you know that that just seems to be uh, a, a very large number of the jobs do, do you think it's just because uh, the people who are doing the development work just don't have sufficient skills or do you think it's it's still a bit too complicated well I, I think there's a couple things that go into it one I think you know in today's environment it's it's easy to grow data at a rate that we never could before. Mm. You know, back in back in the eighties when I started doing database work, you know, it, it was just so much harder to generate data with people typing it in. And now you've got systems that generate data for other systems and so you can go from, you know, no data to ten gig of data in, you know, months or maybe even weeks. And so what you write to process in a in a development environment on a hundred meg or fifty meg system you know, fails when you get bigger. So I think that sure. systems scale much, much quicker. And so that doesn't give, you know, people that are new to SQL Server, you know, you kind of the way I always say is the way you build, learn to build a 100-gigabyte system is you build a 90-gigabyte system, and, and you yeah. just work your way down. So at each little scale, <laughs> you learn a little bit more, but people don't have that time anymore. So yeah. you're, you're suddenly writing very large systems very quickly, so... It's interesting you say that, yeah, because I must admit the size of the databases, uh, when you, yeah, you're talking about things that are automatically generated. I was at a, a site last week, and uh, the sort of work they're doing, they've got electricity meters, and in fact they're recording a reading from every meter in the state every 15 minutes. Oh, wow. And, and, and uh, you know, I just look at the number of rows that are ending up in those tables, and it's uh, it's just breathtaking. Where, um, And to give you an idea of the how drastically that's expanded, they used to receive one reading per quarter. And oh, wow. uh, <laughs> they're now re- getting a reading every 15 minutes. And, and you would think, well, you know, who could possibly ma- make use of that amount of data? But they have amazing trend analysis they're doing, but also they're, they're looking at doing things like being able to go to a client and saying, you know, look, you know, over your six stores or something, for example, uh, you know, this is your load across different parts of the day. And, you know, if you can rearrange your load, we'll change your pricing, you know, to different parts of the day and things like this. It's uh, um, So, uh, you know, even in their case, they, this may be an enabling thing that allows them to start charging different amounts for power for different times of the day. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and uh, so, yeah, but, yeah, the, the amount of data involved is just breathtaking. And, and it never stops. The data just keeps, just keeps coming. Hmm. Yeah. The, the system you write to process three months' data, you know, might fail on nine months or years' worth of data. Yeah. And the other thing I'm starting to see a lot of is as disk gets cheap, people are saving a lot more historical data than they ever did before. Uh, you know, I'm yes. a client that I'm just finishing up where we just put a brand new system in uh, probably about seven or eight months ago, and already I would say three-fourths of the data in there is just historical audit trail stuff that mm. nobody ever wants to delete. And it just grows and grows and grows and gets harder and harder to query. <laughs> it's it's funny you mentioned that actually. On uh, another site I was at the other day, they they were saying that they went and talked to the business folk and they said, look, uh, can we archive the data off? And they said, yes, 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 yes. But but then they said, yeah, but we need to be able to get to it immediately. <laughs> yeah, the definition of archive has changed a little bit. <laughs> so you can archive it, but it has to look just like the regular data. So yes. Have, have you seen much interest in table partitioning from that point of view in SQL Server 2005? Um, I personally haven't, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think that's just more. I think that's a function of the, the some of the clients I'm working with more than it is. Yeah. But that's that's not a compelling feature. Hmm. Yeah, I must admit, for these sort of people, it's a completely compelling feature. So yeah. And uh, it, it actually avoids a lot of the convoluted things they used to do where they'd have uh, sequences of archive tables and things like that. So it, um, yeah, just the ability some, to... 
yeah break a table up into into different file groups and and perhaps even have you know part of it read only and part not and so on that makes a big difference to them so I think there's some that will get to it soon they just they just have not gone down that path yet hmm the the other thing I must admit I, I find is that invariably uh, when we go out doing performance uh, troubleshooting again I, I was at a, a place where we're doing sort of mentoring work recently and I find what we end up doing when when you go in to solve the performance problem the uh, in, invariably the the developers you end up having a discussion where they they realise then that there's a whole heap of things that they need to go and redevelop and and they have that sort of I wish somebody had told me this six or twelve months ago. Type discussion. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I see that quite a bit too. And you know, typically, I mean, developers are, are usually pretty sharp folks, but they're really, mm. really focused on you know how does my how does my client application work efficiently. And for a lot of them, and I see this in a lot of in a lot of situations when they build an env- a development environment, they don't have the same scale they have in production. So that yeah. query that works, you know, just fine on a hundred or a thousand rows, then breaks down on, you know, a ten million or a hundred million, mm. and you know, it's always a struggle to get there the right data sets. Uh, you know, and the great thing about SQL is, is even if you get them a reasonable sized data set, in some cases, you know, a production server just picks a different query plan than a than a fair sized development server, and they're they're still not. It's still a little harder to accurately judge how that query is going to perform in production. Yeah, actually, w- one of the things I really do enjoy about doing uh, SQL performance tuning is just the percentage improvement that you're often able to have. I, I, uh, I know when I'm sort of looking at um, making changes to applications, it's very hard to tweak, you know, five and six and seven percent changes, but it, it's not at all uncommon to go into sites with queries that take a minute and make them take you know less than a second and things like that because it's just not structured properly so uh, but I, I love the looks on the people's faces yeah I am always very amazed at just some incredibly I don't want to say simple changes but but small changes can have just a huge huge impact mm. um, you know I worked at a client once that had a, a website that was timing out and they were in the process of designing a Specking out a new server, uh, you know, a big four-processor box with, you know, I don't remember how many gigabytes of RAM. And so, while well, we waited for that to get approved, we started doing a little tuning and just looking at the SQL, yeah. and discovered yeah. that they had a web page that was using a server-side cursor. Yeah. And it, you know, this was back in the days of SQL Seven. Mm. So every round trip was, you know, every row return was a round trip, and we had a lot of contention on TempDB as it built temp tables behind there for that. And so we changed two lines of client code to use a separate connection, and their, their, their server went from non-responsive and timing out to, you know, just bang, 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 bang. Two lines of yeah. code. Yeah, actually, the other one that I find uh, in a similar vein makes an amazing difference is. Uh, good use of caching in the, in, in the middle tier. The uh, uh, particularly where, with web applications with ASP.NET, just where good use of the, the cache object hasn't been made. And uh, I, I saw a site um, recently that was a, a sporting site, and uh, you know basically they'd obviously tested the site with a, a moderately small number of users and and figured that most people would be doing read-only access and they'd sort of you know allowed for a small number of people to be doing uh, much more interactive type things but you know then all it took is somebody to to put a competition up on the site and then just completely bury you know the uh, the entire thing and you know when when you have a look at it the the big problem most of the the problem is simply that uh, things that were just endlessly being read from the database could easily have been cached in the middle tier you know, the other thing that I think is pretty neat when I do a lot of uh, performance tuning, I've been in, uh, you know, there's another client that I've been in talking to, and and we use uh, Microsoft's tool to identify the queries they're taking all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we find one of those and we work through it with the developers, you know, their skill level ramps up really quick. And within a very short amount of time, as they start looking at writing new things, and they're coming yeah. and sitting down and talking about, 
know, here's how I want to approach this, and here's kind of how I think it might work, and, and you get a, you get a, uh, you know, much more involvement up front from them in, you know, how do I make this thing perform well? That's always pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed you did a webcast recently on query tuning from uh, up on the Microsoft side, and the you, you clearly think that uh, the ability to read a query plan is a, a key skill for a developer. I, I really do. I you know one of the things that uh, that I always go in and talk to developers. I ask them how many of them use you know Query Analyzer or Management Studio, and how many use Visual Studio, and so mm. many of them their SQL in in Visual Studio. Uh, and that just does not give you, I, I don't think, the tools to really evaluate how that query is going to work and run in production. So I'm a, I'm a yeah. big fan of developers. Uh, you know, use Management Studio, use Query Analyzers, look at query plans, understand the impact that this is going to have. Because uh, really, I mean, you can, you know, once you've written a, you know, a six or eight or ten table join or stored procedure, you can run it through and look at the query plan. And if you've got a good sized data set, I mean, you can just take a quick eyeball and say, for table scans, that's not going to be very fast. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, I mean quick. that's right. It, it doesn't take very long to recognize table scans. The what what surprises me too is the number of times that they're just not aware that it's occurring, uh, uh, or that you uncover poor indexing structures or, or things like that. It's it's just so common, you know. Um, Profiler tracers, I find that that sort of thing just appears all the time. I mean, if you look at the the number of IOs on different steps and things, it, uh, I mean, the tools are there to make it very, very clear to you what's going on. Well, and something else that I've been curious about, and I was involved in a project that did an awful lot of uh, agile development, and mm-hmm. some of the some of the components of that project, you know, the, the database was was designed very well up front. But in other pieces, the database kind of grew to meet the requirements. And, yeah. you know, what they grew was a table design, but not necessarily an indexing strategy. So then as we got mm. into production, we kept discovering new indexes we needed. So it was, you know, data grew like data grows. Uh, yeah. It was just, you know, only uncovering new indexes we needed because nobody had gone back and done any kind of a systematic, you know, index foreign keys, index clauses, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, uh, even a site I was at um, uh, only only again a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, I was ha- having a look at like the number one stored procedure that they run sort of all day every day, and the other thing that I find that's quite fascinating is the number of times I see people that have wrapped quite complex logic in a view, and and you tend to get views on views, or they've just you know when they're looking for a column, they look around and find a view that offers the column, and and there's just no concept at all of what's going on in the background to produce that view. You know, it's uh, uh, and sometimes it's just a complete disconnect. Uh, I, I saw one recently where where they had uh, yeah, code that I think must have been automatically generated, but it basically did like a select distinct from, and then it was select distinct from again, and then it, and that was from a view, and they were selecting one column, but underneath that, uh, you know, from memory there were the view was selecting 76 columns, you know, from eight tables with, you know, three left out of joins and just just amazingly scary things. Uh, and, but in the end, it was just that they looked around and gone, oh, yeah, we can get that column from that view. You know? Yeah, that's, yeah, views are interesting because, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity to, to do the kinds of things you say where something that looks very, very simple, looks very complex underneath, but at yeah. the same time, I run into a lot of my clients that just don't use views at all, and they just write mm-hmm. the same code over and over and over again. And it yeah. just, you know, I, I think at my heart I may be a little bit lazy, so whatever I can do to type a little bit less, I'm happy to do. And <laughs> so these are one of those things that always saves me typing time, and so I try and use them wherever I can. Hmm. Uh, views are my, I guess I always think of views as my API into my database. It's not going to build me a, build my of views to do what I needed to do. Yeah, actually, I must admit it is one of the interesting things that comes up when uh, they start discussing uh, things like exposing web services directly out of databases. The w- one of the key advantages people see there is, is the uh, the fact that you're exposing a specific contract. Um, 
and you know, as opposed to, I mean, the common question you get with stored procs is that people say, you know, how do I know what what comes back from a stored proc? And I mean, you you can kind of know, but you you don't necessarily know. And uh, the I think the the thing that the folk that are keen on exposing web services are, are very keen on is that you have a very specific contract, uh, which kind of you know decouples the logic a bit. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, that's it's it's just another area that will talk about another day but it's it's uh it sort of fascinates me more the the moving of sort of contracts and things back down into the database end so well it, it's interesting if you i mean you know with web services with the service broker architecture with the clr and sql server i mean there's a real opportunity to to, to really rethink how and where a database mm. fits in i'll be the first to admit i there's a whole lot of thinking going on there that i know i haven't done uh, yeah well, one of the things you did mention, though, uh, you're mentioning agile development before, and you, I know one of the things you were saying uh, that you're interested in was trying to fit databases into an agile model. Yeah, so, that's, that's an interesting, interesting problem because it, you know, it comes along from, you know, when you change your database design out from under an application, I mean, that can create just mm-hmm. a, a tremendous rework. And you know, I've seen some projects that have done that. And they've actually they've seemed to go pretty well. Uh, and unfortunately, I was only involved with some of them from the from the periphery. But I, I, I'm really curious as folks go more and more agile. It seems like that really works really well in a Windows application that doesn't need a database. But the mm. more you plug it into it, you know, you take a, a business object, an invoice that you might model with, you know, at a very simple level, two or three tables. And you change something under structure because so now you model it with five or six tables. Well, that's got to create just a whole lot of code rewrite. That yeah. you don't wonder if you know more design up front couldn't help with that. Uh, and I, mm. I know there's some agile guru that has a great answer to that. But every white paper I've read and every article that I've read has kind of just worked its way around that issue and not really addressed it. To mm. where I said, hey, that's something that I can really use. So I, I don't know. Mm. I'm, that's one of the things I'm curious about. Yeah, actually, what what sort of interests me with that? Um, I, I also sort of personally think it's an area where the the, the tools we're using are, are just not up to it at, at the moment. Uh, I mean, while the tools are very good for what they do, I I, I look at how far um, the tools for doing say .NET development and things like that have moved. And the ability to which you can do things like constant refactoring of your code. So, you know, I can sort of every I can go off and build some new part of the code, and then every time I build a new part, I can go back and easily look and see if I should be somehow refactoring the code to, to tidy it up and and to to rearrange how things are done so that to bring it more to you know this is what it would have looked like if I'd thought about the whole thing in the first place. And um, I just look at many of the things we have today with uh, procs and all this sort of area where I look, pe- people very uh, often are just completely scared to touch anything because they really don't know what they're going to affect. Yeah, it's interesting that IntelliSense gives you, you know, if you change something, Visual Studio tells you just immediately. But if you change something in a data model in a different tool, you know, an enterprise architect tool, What's the impact going to be down the down the road? You no, know, I mean even even if you had a um, a proc, for example, and you want to do things like let's say, uh, you know, some sort of change to the parameters or things like that. You know, it's the whole, you know, everybody just completely shudders because it's like you know <laughs> they have little idea what that's going to affect. You know, and realistically, yeah. um, and so yeah, I do, I do just sort of wonder if you know uh, if if we had tools that would allow the de- uh, the development work in the database to be more agile. We might be more prepared to make some of those changes. That's true. That's an interesting thing. You know, when you get true IntelliSense in the IDE for database objects, and you know, you can very quickly say, list my dependencies on this. That really might change how we think about that. Yeah. Well, I think I suppose one of the things that's uh, the perennial discussion with uh, things like T-SQL is the uh, the deferred name resolution. The, the the fact that you know if I mention an object that does exist, it'll check that the columns exist. But if I 
you know, misspell the name of the object, it'll just presume it's some object it doesn't know about yet. And uh, uh, at the moment, the the idea that there isn't really a very good way to find out about that until until runtime. Yep. There's a there's a neat video on Channel Nine that Anders Helsberg did about uh, the language integrated query, the link stuff. Yep. And he talks about IntelliSense and name resolution for SQL versus C sharp, and he. Yes, I mentioned a little complaints about how, you know, in SQL you start with the column names. But if we started with yeah. the from clause, you know the tables, and then you get IntelliSense account. It was, it's an interesting little video to watch. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, cool. actually, it's, it's kind of fascinating stuff. I, I was at a software design review in, uh, must have been May, May last year, or God, it may have even been the year before, uh, where we were sort of looking at, uh, some some of the the link things and some of the the stuff coming further down the track and the and, and we did set, spend a session with Melind Lee and uh, he was sort of showing us a whole lot of things that they were trying in in trying to add IntelliSense into into T SQL and I must admit after spending an hour with him I I came away with a newfound respect as, as just how complicated that is. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the other languages are really, really well structured, and, and you know, if you look at T SQL, I mean, if you if you type select and then go space, and you know, I mean, there really is almost anything could come next. Yep. Yep. It's uh, you know, and it's interesting because you look at you know C sharp and Java and even VB, and those languages have gone revision after revision after revision. Whereas, I mean, the core of SQL has been unchanged now for what thirty years. Yeah. 60, I think one of the other things he was saying uh, makes it difficult as well as the the idea of having an optional line terminator. Um, yeah. Because one of the the parsing issues they have is is trying to work out where the lines, you know, the statements stop and finish. You know, it's interesting because I've been, uh, you know, a little utility that I've been working on is to simulate the read eighty trace stuff for SQL Server two thousand five. So I've been mm-hmm. playing a little bit with. Yeah, because that that isn't going to appear in 2005, is it? Uh, from what I've heard, it will. It, they will not be able to release that for 2005. So, mm-hmm. so look, to, most people probably haven't, or many will not have seen or heard of that. So maybe if you could just describe what that is for a few minutes. So. Sure. So read 80 trace is a little utility that the Microsoft Product Support Group wrote, and it does it does two things. The first thing it does is it will generate uh, you got to call them uh, like a replayable markup language. I think is the word they use. RML files that let you take a trace file and get a lot more sophisticated replay of that trace file back at SQL Server than you can with Profiler. The other mm. thing that it will do is, and this is what I use it for, it's for aggregating uh, what SQL statements are taking time on your server. So, for example, you can feed it a trace file and parse that trace file. And let's say you have, you know, two select statements, you know, select star from table where column is one and then where column is two. It will normalize those so that those two select statements, it it can match them up. So it will get rid of parameters and things like that. And so you can go back then and summarize, you know, here's where all my CPU is going, here's where all my reads are going. And it is, it is a fantastic tool for performance tuning. And what we really find is that you might find a few queries that are really slow and you can fix those. But it's your query that runs 10,000 times in an hour. It's fairly quick to run, but simply by running 10,000 times just sucks up so much of that CPU that even a yeah. little gain in that would make a huge impact on performance. Yeah. Uh, but that's a that's basically a command line utility. It's a fantastic little tool. But uh, as I understand it, they're not going to be able to release that for uh, for 2005. Mm. So I sat down and writing my own. And Excellent. I've released, <laughs> I've released a few uh, uh, out there on the on the internet on the weblog, uh, which is linked on SQL Team, and it's still pretty beta. But it, you know, I started. I thought in this discussion was I started trying to figure out how to parse object names. Yeah. And you know, you know, even something as simple as that, with you know, there's multiple. You can fill it with brackets, with quotes. If you don't have space, yep. you know, 
have to delimit That's them. right, the quoting, plus also aliases and the fact that the word as is optional, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. on and so on. It, 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 is, it is tricky. So, Listen, so, that's probably know, a good point to, to take a short break and then we'll come back after the break. Sounds good. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So, welcome back from the break. Uh, so, Bill, what I might get you to do is just spend a few minutes just tell us anything you're willing to share about who you are and where you live and, uh, and what you're interested in. Gosh, that's a big, uh, big broad, open question. Um, <laughs> well, I live smack dab in the middle of the United States in a city called Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a very avid uh, college basketball fan, although uh, my my KU Jayhawks just lost in the first round of the tournament for the second year in a row. So you, know, you probably don't follow that down in Australia, but uh, no. What what we did see the other day, though, was the young autistic guy wandering around with uh, President Bush, who uh, where, where the yeah. young kid had actually won the college. Uh, was it a school game or? It was, yeah, he was, uh, there's, there's a video you can download off ESPN. He was a manager for a basketball team and had never gotten to play in a game. And then his last, the last game of the season, they were ahead and they put him in. And I, I guess he hit, you know, he made four or five baskets in, in very short succession, which was all pretty amazing. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I was left with the sort of feeling he's probably a kid that had just sat there practicing all his life and ne- never had a real chance. So, yeah, you know, so, yeah, and when he finally got to do it, yeah, yeah, he might be. It's, it's an interesting thing to watch. It's kind of heartwarming, and you know, it's only a couple minutes long, so it's there's a mm. link to it. Some ESPN I know. Uh, it's yeah, probably it's a look. Yeah, ah, certainly the, the little bit of the video they showed on our news was was just. Stunning stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because they edited that very well. It looks like he just makes basket after basket after basket. <laughs> read the article in a little more detail. He actually missed. He missed half the shots he took, which you know yeah. is still very yeah. good. But it's not yeah. like he just yeah. made everything he shot. So <laughs> they they certainly uh, edited that to make the story as compelling as possible. Yeah. So there's an interest in basketball. What else? Um. Gosh, well, it's it's turning into summer here. I guess you guys are, are starting to finish up summer. Uh, yeah. But I'm a big fan of sailing, which considering that I live... And you live right out, in the middle of the country, yeah. <laughs> I live, I think, as far away as you can live from the ocean in America. <laughs> so there's a little lake about 45 minutes away, and I have a sailboat out there on the lake, and I I try and get out there uh, as much as I can and go sail. Uh, I started with my father when I was little, and uh, mm. just always enjoyed it. So it's something that he and I can go do uh, together, and you know, gets me to see my family on a regular basis. Outstanding! So that's great. Well, listen, one of the things we were talking about earlier, we just started to lead into when we were talking about agile development. Um, one of the things I, I noted in uh, reading some of your material, you were saying you'd had some success using Nant um, mm-hmm. and tools you've written yourself. I'm, uh, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy is, is, you know, looking at the development process and how do you make that work better. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. often, you know, to, to write little tools. Anytime I can not type something repetitively and, and build a tool or utility to do it, I'm, I'm usually a pretty happy camper there. Yeah. Uh, we were working at a client and they had been writing a, a pretty big application and they were in a position to begin to move that into, you know, test environments. They didn't really have a good way to do that. Uh, what they they had a, a giant shared development environment, and their approach to, to build a test system was to copy the development environment and then begin trying to delete obvious test data to, to leave them with kind of what they thought was a clean environment. Yeah. We ended up uh, trying to start from a, a, a bare SQL model, just a script to create the tables, 
yeah. script to create the objects and then to load it. We ended up with a Nant script. Uh, ended up being something like 3,000 lines long. Yeah. Actually, for I suppose a, a lot of DBAs would be listening to this who might not be familiar with build processes and sure. stuff in that regard. So maybe you've just spent a few minutes sort of talking about Nant. Actually, it might be. Uh, that's useful. a good point. So Nant is a utility that's designed to build software, and the the big thing that Nant gives you um, is is a very simple scripting language to do things related to building uh, compiles file copies, checking if files are newer, checking version numbers, uh, those types of things. It also does dependency checking. So, for example, we were able to build a task within Nant uh, that said, you know, if I want to load test data, I first have to uh, build the tables. To build the tables, mm-hmm. I first have to, you know, drop and recreate the database. Yeah. You can do that all in a pretty... Uh, straightforward little declarative language and it's got some neat little SQL functionality in that you can embed SQL directly into the tool so you can say you know I want to do a create database statement but the name of the database is going to be this variable that Nant has been keeping track of yeah Uh, so you know there were very very few things that I found I wanted to do that I couldn't and it was just so much easier than if I had written it in .NET or any other language that could could come up with, um, you know, because it was very easy to, to, to copy files, to check for existence, to have it handle errors very gracefully and, and tell me, you know, very clearly where it failed. Hmm. Uh, so basically built a script that would, you know, drop a database, uh, create the database, build all the objects we needed. We actually had... What are we up to? I think there are now four applications that all share this main database. And many of the applications yeah. shared objects. You know, the, the customer table was was the same across all of them. So we had the ability, as we were building, you know, one of the later uh, applications, you know, it would automatically build each of the ones for that for us. So we yeah. could say, build, build this application, and it would do whatever it needed to get to that. Mm. The other thing that it did is we we had parameterized it all, so we very it was very easy to change which server it built against, and we were able to give developers the simple little batch files where they just changed the environment variable for what server they wanted to do it. They could run the batch file and build themselves a development environment whenever they wanted. Actually, what I've what I've seen people do for that, I might add, uh, where there are different environments like test and staging environments and so on. Uh, another neat trick with that is to to often have it actually go out and access it via um, a DNS name and then actually use things like a, a set hosts file or some you know a host file or things like that that is different in the different environments that automatically redirects off to the appropriate servers. Um, I've actually found that works really, really well and uh, you know, by comparison with things that, you know, I, I see often people have uh, install processes into different environments when they're doing testing, and they've always got to remember to then, you know, change this file or change that file and so on. And uh, I, I often think you can sort of, with, with a thing like a DNS entry, for example, you could just point it and say to, you know, something server, and then you could just always have that resolve to a different name in the different environments. That that would work well, too. Uh, what I, I, our environment, what we wanted to do is we wanted a way to script this, uh, and I don't, I don't know if there's an easy way to programmatically change where a DSN points, but I'd have to, I'd have to think about that. But no, case, the neat thing is you you can have it point to a fixed name, but then you could actually have that name resolve to a different actual name in the different environments. I see what you're saying. Sure, sure. Yeah. That would, that would certainly work. Um, hmm. But, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly one I've seen successful anyway, yeah. But, and I think the key thing in there is to build in that level of indirection so that yes. you can write something that can run against, you know, as many servers as possible. We had, we ended up with having four concurrent projects, each one having development, test, uh, QA, actually in some cases multiple tests. We ended up having about 25 to 30 server instances to manage and keep track of uh, 
you know, what was on, what got built to what area. Oh, look, it, it can certainly get very complicated. Uh, there was a, a site we were doing work for uh, some months back where they, um, actually early last year, and and uh, they, they had about 30-odd different servers, and then they had all of those again in each of four different environments. So there was kind of a, you know, a test environment, a staging environment, a UA, and, and you know, and a production environments, and, and, and literally they were trying to manage 30-odd servers in each of those environments, so... It, uh, it does cascade very, very quickly. Um, but that, you know, that worked out really, really well for us. We were able to uh, build those environments. The other big variable that we had was we had a lot of time-sensitive data. We would have to bring down copies of all our production data as of a certain point in time. And yep. then we'd do a build against, you know, July 1st, and we'd try and dump all the numbers and it wouldn't work. We'd change the code. We'd do another build mm-hmm. against July and try and balance it out. So we even had, you know, different days in different environments. Uh, but that let us do just lots and lots and lots of simulated conversions. Is what we ended up being able yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh, Actually, just, uh, it is one of it is one of the challenges in doing testing with SQL in that uh, or databases in general is that you usually have sort of time and date dependent things much more so than they do. Uh, with somebody say develop middle tier objects or something, and you know, in, most of their testing is not. You know, you, you, they, they don't have to worry about whether you'll have data in a particular date range or, or things like that. You know, it's, a, it's usually uh, more simplistic, the testing they're able to do. And I do find that's one of the challenges is uh, being able to have sort of known outputs, but, you know, the dates keep moving on, you know, <laughs> I mean, the whole time. They do, and that's exactly the problem that we faced was being able to recreate, you know, an as of a particular date and then try and balance out those numbers. That actually raises an interesting thing. I think another one of the areas I see is quite complicated is is the whole area of uh, sort of unit testing or uh, testing of procs and things like that. Uh, there was an interesting article in MSDN magazine a little while back where they were sort of proposing different ways of doing this, but in most cases they seem to use tools like NUnit or something, but they, they end up sort of like starting a transaction and then rattling a whole lot of work and then, you know, rolling it back at the end or something like that. But you know, it, it, that's usually not that trivial to, to, you know, once you start having nested transactions and things. And, uh, you know, often the only way to really test the things is almost to do a full database restore before every test. And, uh, and that's, that's pretty scary stuff to do. It uh, it really is, and you know if you're dealing with a, a any kind of a decent sized data set, it's also time prohibitive too. Hmm. Uh, and I, I wish I had a silver bullet for that, but <laughs> yeah. it's just it's uh, you know it's a struggle to to wade through that. I mean you can yeah I think database testing as a whole that that is what, still one of the really big challenges is the you know how how you can run a proc that might affect a whole lot of things but have the database be in a known state, you know, every time you want to test that, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I wonder if uh, some of the snapshots in 2005 will let us do things like that. Yeah, I, I keep wondering about that, although the probably the the downside of that is the uh, the fact that they're typically, I mean, it's a read-only snapshot, you know. Um, in fact, what I'm thinking is probably more likely to be useful uh, uh, things like virtual PC, uh, where you could have an undo disk, you know, and we could fire it up in an environment which is, uh, we've taken a snapshot at, at a particular point in time. You could then run test suites against it, um, and then just simply undo everything you just did at the disk level. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. Hmm. And, uh, it's, a, it's one I've been meaning to try and spend a bit of time. I mean, it's one most, Speakers do now for presentations where we, we have a you know a virtual PC that the uh, the presentation's done on at the end of the presentation. I mean you just don't commit anything. You just undo everything you just did in the presentation. Then it's ready to go again for the next one. But uh, I think the same sort of technology probably needs something along those lines needs to be used for database testing. Yep. Do you ever feel like you have more ideas and you have time to to work through them? Oh yes. <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll, I'll read something or I'll hear something and I'll say, wow, I, you know, I'd like to think through that and learn more about that. And it's just, I just don't have enough time. 
Ah, uh, yeah. Actually, in, in terms of things coming up in the future now, uh, you're going to be speaking in Seattle, I presume, so uh, with the upcoming conference, and this is along the lines of kind of things that you wish developers knew or something? Yeah, actually, uh, I'm going to be a spotlight speaker at the upcoming PASS conference, and uh, my presentation mm-hmm. is going to be what I wish the developers knew about SQL Server. And I did a very started blast conference, and this is all now updated for 2005 material. Right. And you know, so it, could it, you share maybe two or three of the top things from that? Sure. Well, and it's interesting because I, I I went at this a little different than trying to be you know a, a really in depth everything you want to know about transactions, and really tried to focus more on you know here's the mistakes I see again and again and again. Uh, and, you know, we've talked a lot about query plans and understanding those, and that's probably the biggest thing that, that I wish developers knew more about is understanding how simple changes to a query can really impact a query plan. You know, a simple thing like wrapping function around a column and then expecting it to use an index, you know, it, it, it just it won't, and you yeah. suddenly created a table scan, uh, things like that. Um, when I did the 2000 version of the presentation, I talked an awful lot about um, error handling in SQL Server or lack of error handling. A lack of error handling, yes. <laughs> it, the, the, the types of patterns that would work well in that, um, you know, and having to check every statement and, you know, and react to that. Um, you know, those were some of, those were probably two of the bigger areas that I talked about are how to handle mm errors gracefully and you know kind of transactions fit into that too of how do you how do you gracefully roll back a transaction when your stored procedure may have started its own transaction may have had a transaction passed to it from a parent stored procedure or a client application uh, you know things like that yeah that's great well look I must admit I'm I'm really hoping I can get to see that one uh, one of the uh the challenge is whenever you're speaking at any of these conferences, you know that uh, there's usually something else going on in another room you'd like to see that you you don't get no. to see. So, <laughs> In we fact, we've got a, an upcoming code camp at the moment, and uh, I'm sort of allocating an introductory track alongside the main track, and uh, I'm also trying to decide, you know, which, which things I'd really, you know, if if I'm getting one of the speakers to to pr- present something in the introductory track, I'm trying to not be too painful with what they might want to watch in the main track themselves. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a that's quite a challenge. Well, you know, when you know, one of the things that I'm doing this year for Pass is I'm the program director, and mm-hmm. trying to make it, uh, as hard as possible to uh, have people find slots that they don't like any sessions. We try and fill up every slot with great sessions. Yeah. That's great. So I suppose just uh, getting towards time, uh, I suppose the, the main other thing is just uh, where can we see you, uh, what's happening in your world, what's what's coming up? So Seattle's one. Obviously, that's in November. Sure. Seattle's in November. Uh, if you happen to be in Kansas, I'm going to be speaking in Wichita on April 28th, I think, whatever that Friday is. I'm going to be in Wichita. Uh, I'm actually hoping to go to a couple of minor league baseball games. I'm down there too. I'm a, Excellent. I'm a big baseball fan. Excellent. Uh, I, I must talk to you further about that one day. I, uh, strangely, for an Australian, it's actually a sport I played since I was uh, very young. And, no uh, yes, indeed. And uh, I ended up uh, also then doing a lot of coaching and uh, in later years a lot of umpiring. Uh, so it, uh, oh, I, wow. I, fa- I found that the umpiring was something that. Um, uh, gave you a different perspective on dealing with people, <laughs> shall we say? I, I would agree. I I umpired for a number of years, and I I certainly agree with that. Well, yeah. No, actually, it was really enjoyable. Uh, I've uh, worked through different umpiring level. Um, to the uh, I think the the highest level things I ended up doing. I did did do uh, some games in the uh, when they had the Pan Pacific Games here and. Uh, uh, things like that. So it was, yeah, sort of international comps in a couple of things. It was really, really interesting to do. Wow, you know how far I did. The expectation level is pretty high, though, <laughs> you know, at that point. Well, one of the, uh, one of Kansas City, I'm a Kansas City Royals fan, and one of our best prospects is a young Australian kid by the name of uh, Justin Huber. Okay. So Excellent. Well, and in fact, the, uh, 
the probably the the better the better known of the local guys. I actually uh, grew up. Uh, my my coach was a guy called Bob Neil, um, uh, Tim Nilsson actually, and uh, Tim they used to call him Big Red. But uh, he had a, uh, all his boys grew up playing baseball, and probably the the best known was Dave Nilsson. Uh, Dave ended up playing for Milwaukee for many years, and uh, uh, and then later off uh, across in Japan. And he was, he's just an amazing player. Uh, it's uh, and uh, I must admit, I've ended up coaching his nephews many years back, and uh, also uh, just just umpired games where he's been playing. And it, you know, where you know, if you have him there as a catcher and you're umpire, it, it's just an amazing thing to watch. I I, I, I find it <laughs> quite interesting, shall we say? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. But the the speed of those games is is really something. I I, I find it quite exhilarating. The the high level games, yeah. Yeah. I think the the thing I love too is that I must have been in the in the uh, the US ones. The, the guys at the top level clearly understand that they're part of a big show, you know. And it's, uh, I mean, the fact they call it the show, but you know, they, they certainly do seem to think that way as well. I, uh, the, my favourite story I heard from a uh, one of the old umpires uh, umpiring at Candlestick Park many many years ago. He, he was saying he uh, had a situation where he had a guy slid into second one day, and he'd uh, he'd He'd called safe, but he'd indicated out, <laughs> you know? and, he, and he said the the guy was lying on the ground looking at him and uh, <laughs> you know, not not knowing what to do. And he said he uh, he leaned down. And he said, "Well, he said, you know, you're safe." He said, "No, I know you're safe." He said, "But there's sixty thousand people out there think you're out, so see you later." <laughs> yep. <laughs> all they see is the arm. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So that was just yeah, look a wonderful game. I, I love the game, but uh, I'm glad glad to see you love it too. Great, I I did not expect to find an Australian baseball fan on this phone call. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, that's good. So, uh, any other speaking? So Kansas City, you're saying you're uh, speaking? There's uh, articles or writing or any of those sort of things on the go? Uh, no, nothing else scheduled at this point. I know I've got a couple other webcasts coming up. Those are not. Those are not scheduled yet. Uh, yep. I, I publish... Yeah, really encourage people to get up and have a look at those. The uh, On the webcast site, there are so many webcasts posted up there. They're, uh, they're, they're just an amazing, uh, high-quality, free resource that people can learn from. In fact, I don't know if you got to see that uh, series of 10 that uh, Kim Tripp posted up recently, but uh, I've just heard you know, rave reviews from people that watch those. Yeah, I have, I have just begun to look at those. Mm. So, uh, and there's just a wealth of free information up there. Yep, I uh, I have a fair number. Of, I have a lot of articles up on people. I'm not writing as regularly as I'd like, but I try and get something out there every month or so. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. doing a lot of work 2005 lately on the CLR, some SMO articles, uh, trying to understand that. Um, and I I know I'll be speaking in Kansas City. I usually speak at our local SQL Server user group, uh, you know, three or four times a year. So. Great. Um, should be something coming up there soon. Magic. Well, thank you so very much today, Bill. That's been really entertaining to get to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing Great. you in Seattle. <laughs> Indeed. Uh-